We don't talk about Bruno, no, no, no. We don't talk about Bruno. Don't y'all wish I was a worship pastor? Right? We don't talk about Bruno. Did you guys know this? It is literally the number one song on Billboard's Hot 100 this week. It just dropped Adele and Kid Leroy, Justin Bieber, and Ed Sheeran all down a notch. It's literally the number one song, and it's from a Disney movie. The whole concept of the song, and part of the reason that it actually has become so popular, is that it's all about this mysterious character from the movie Encanto. We don't talk about Bruno, because Bruno is the one member of the family that bad things seem to follow. I'm not going to give away the movie if you haven't seen it yet, but there is this secret that the family has about Bruno, and it's why they don't want to talk to him. And quite honestly, when it comes to difficult topics, uh, there's often times in our own lives where we would prefer to not talk about Bruno ourselves. We're actually going to deal with one of those topics today in the book of Joshua. It's the topic of violence. There's no way to engage with the book of Joshua and not recognize some of the violence that takes place within the pages of Scripture and even how God is the one ordaining it. Um, W. Kamau Bell uh, recently came out with a documentary on Cosby that's called We Need to Talk About Cosby. Uh, Bell was born in the 70s, just like me, grew up in the 80s, and anybody that grew up in the 80s knows the Cosby Show. Everybody was raised in the 80s by the Huxtables. In fact, you either wish that the Huxtables were your parents or at least your neighbors until, of course, all of the allegations began to come out over the last few years and Bill Cosby's eventual uh, arrest and conviction. Um, Kamau is a black comedian. Much of his opportunities actually came up as a result of some of the ways that uh, Bill Cosby uh, opened up doors and broke down barriers. And, and yet now there is this difficult legacy to have to deal with. And so he wrote, uh, directed this documentary, I've not seen it, but it asks the question or makes the statement, we need to talk about Cosby. And it reminded me of the conversation that I think we need to have today as well. We need to talk about Joshua. And so what I'd like for us to do is actually spend some time engaging in this topic of the violence that we find throughout the book of Joshua. And it's a little bit... uh, it would have been very easy to skip over this. Uh, in fact, I actually inter- interacted with some folks who kind of help us think through our sermon series, and uh, one of them actually s- kind of suggested that maybe we ought to kind of hit the highlights. But I realized um, I don't think that there's any way for us, especially our church in today's day and age, to engage the book of Joshua and not talk about the violence that's there. It'd be easy to skip over because it's really a highlight. 
in the Old Testament in many ways because uh, Joshua functions as kind of a bridging book. You've got the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, kind of starts in Genesis and goes all the way up to Israel becoming uh, a nation. And Joshua is their movement into the promised land. Uh, It bridges the first five books with what is to follow with the prophets. And so Joshua is performing this uh, bridging thing uh, in the actual storyline of the Old Testament. But within Joshua, it's also uh, highlighting some amazing things that are happening. The promise that God had made to Abraham over 500 years earlier, finally coming to light, finally coming to fruition. They move into the promised land, the land that God had promised them. And land was so important, especially in the ancient Near East figured hugely prominently into the the Old Testament, and not just for Israel, but for nations all throughout the ancient Near East. Not only that, but it is really kind of this great celebration of triumph for Israel. Uh, They get this amazing joy and rest they receive with the gift of the land, especially after being enslaved in Egypt for over 400 years. It's a triumph, but it's a triumph that's filled with violence. And to our 21st century ears, uh, it sounds a lot like God-ordained genocide or ethnic cleansing. So what I'd like to do this morning is ask the question, is it? And what do we do with the violence that's going to make up the next few weeks in our study in the book of Joshua? So what I want us to do this morning is we're going to kind of dive into this topic. And I'm not going to, I'm going to do my best to not pull any punches. Uh, I'm going to do my best to not sugarcoat it. Uh, I want us to look honestly at the context, the language, the genre of literature, uh, what the author of Scripture, God himself, is doing through this book. And so I'd like to really kind of break it into three things this morning, okay? Uh, The first thing that we're going to do is we're going to spend some time in Joshua 5, and that's going to set up the context, all right? Then we're going to deal with the elephant in the room, harem. This is the Hebrew word that means to utterly destroy. And we're going to talk about how to understand this command that God gives in Joshua. And then the last thing I want to do is I want to see what does that teach us about God himself. Okay? You ready? We about to go deep. Joshua chapter 5. If you have your Bibles... Please open up to Joshua chapter 5. We're going to set up the context. We're going to start in verse 9. Joshua chapter 5 verse 9 says, Then Yahweh, the Lord, you see right there, it is L capital O capital R capital D. That is God's proper name. It means Yahweh. Anytime you see in the Bible where it's spelled capital L and then a smaller capital O capital R capital D, that is God's personal name, Yahweh. So it says, then Yahweh said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal to this day. Uh, Dr. Gary Bird shared with us last week about Israel's crossing over from the east side of the Jordan to the west side of the Jordan into the land of Canaan, the promised land that God had given them. Do you remember what Dr. Bird shared with us about how Israel set up stones of remembrance and how we need to set up those stones of remembrance in our own lives, ways that we will remember God's faithfulness so when hard times come, we don't forget what God has done in the past. So here we are, 
Israel is on the other side of the Jordan River now. They're actually in the promised land for the first time. God has come to Joshua and said, I've taken away the reproach, all right, the shame of those 400 years. And so they're there at Gilgal. Verse 10, on the month, or excuse me, on the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. They celebrate that amazing day when God delivered them from the hands of the Egyptians. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate the produce of Canaan. God had been taking care of the Israelites, even though they had been disobedient to him. He'd been providing uh, food for them to eat. Manna and even quail at times, and now they're finally in the promised land, and for the first time, they actually eat food that has come from the land. And so God stops providing the manna because they no longer need it. Uh, I've got a little map up here, and check this out. I've got a sweet laser pointer. I was so excited to get a laser pointer so I can play with this thing with you guys. So here's what we've got right here. I want to show you a couple little spots. This is right here, Shittim. All right, Mount Nebo is right about here. On Mount Nebo, Moses dies. At Shittim, Joshua becomes the leader of Israel. He's just led them across. This is the Jordan River right here. See the Sea of Galilee up there. The um, Dead Sea down here. This is the Jordan River. They've just been led across. This is Gilgal. You can barely see it. And right next to it is Jericho. So they're super close to each other. They're camped out right now at Gilgal where this is happening. Okay, They're just about to have their first battle for the land at Jericho. If you remember a couple weeks ago, we heard the story of Rahab and the spies, how God used a complete outsider even to her own culture and especially to the people of God and showed that uh, outsiders become insiders through faith and that the issue is of being outside or inside has everything to do with what we think, how, uh, what we think about Yahweh, whether we're going to believe that he truly is God of heaven and God of earth. And what we have here in Joshua chapter 5 is this moment where they're getting ready to start the conquest. Now, uh, keep reading with me, though, because we're going to find something very interesting happening here in verse 13. It says, Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. This is kind of an interesting verse. On the one hand, we expect that there's going to be uh, people from uh, other places that are going to come to fight Israel. This actually happens all throughout Joshua. Israel's uh, usually having to defend themselves throughout the conquest. Uh, They're not the first ones to make a move. Um, Armies come to them. And so here we have Joshua. He's not too far from Jericho, and there's... Dude standing in front of him with a sword, and the sword is drawn, like ready for battle. Joshua actually says something to the man. Keep reading. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you with us? Or excuse me, are you for us or for our enemies? In Joshua's mind, there's two options. Joshua said, Hey, you're either on Israel's side or you're on the other side. There's only two sides. 
Israel's side and the other side. And then the man actually answers him, though, and is like, no, 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 there's actually a third option here. I'm on neither side, he says. But as commander of the army of Yahweh, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. There's a couple things that are happening in this short little story that we read here in chapter 5. The first thing is that God is again showing how Joshua is the new Moses, how he mirrors the life of Joshua. Just last week, Dr. Burge reminded us how Joshua led Israel through the Jordan River. God stopped the river up even at flood stage, and they crossed on through, just as God had done when Moses was leading Israel when they came to the Sea of Reeds, and God opened it up so that they could walk through on there. Now here we have the same thing happening again. Earlier we realize in Moses' life, that he meets God at the burning bush, and God says, this place is holy, take off your shoes. Now we have a messenger from God, okay, the commander of the Lord's armies. We're not sure, it's very possible, it's Michael the archangel, but Joshua very quickly realizes that he's in the presence of someone that is bigger, stronger than him, an actual messenger from Yahweh, and he falls to the ground, and that's when he says, hey, this is holy ground. You need to take off your sandals. It's a mirroring of what's happening in Moses' life, and Joshua's life. But I don't think that that's actually the most important reason why this is put in here. You see, in Joshua's mind, it was either Israel and everybody else. But what God wanted Israel to know by including this story in the book of Joshua, and what God wanted Joshua to know in that moment, is that it's not Israel and everybody else, it's Yahweh and everybody else. You're either on Yahweh's side, or you're opposed to Yahweh. Those are the only two differentiations that matter. And Joshua quickly realizes the mistake that he's made and falls to the ground in reverence. And I think that it's through that lens of Yahweh's side or everybody or anybody else's that we have to read everything else we're going to talk about when it comes to violence and the harem or utterly just utter destruction that's talked about here in Joshua. So, um, what I'd love for us to do is uh, actually, oh, did I miss something? Let's, okay. Let's get to the difficult part, okay? Uh, flip back with me to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Now, this is actually where God has commanded Moses and then ultimately Joshua of how they're supposed to handle things when they get into the promised land. Uh, this is where we're going to learn about this Hebrew word, harem, Deuteronomy chapter 7. Did I say Joshua 7? Okay, good. Deuteronomy 7. That's where we're supposed to be. Flip back there. It's when God is instructing them on what they're supposed to do. Deuteronomy 7, verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations. So in other words, who's doing this? God. God's bringing Israel in. God is also driving out the nations. This is not something that Israel does. This is something that God does. He says the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when Yahweh your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, 
then you must destroy them totally. Destroy them totally is that Hebrew word harem. It means to ban, to annihilate, to utterly, to bring to utter destruction. That's what the word means. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters or uh, to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. And now God is going to explain why this is important, why he's asking them to do this. For they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And Yahweh's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. Again, God is laying out this issue of it's Yahweh's side and those that oppose Yahweh. And the reason that he wants this harem to happen and for them not to intermarry is because he knows what will happen if they do. Their hearts will be drawn away from the covenant that's made with God, which we see time and time again throughout the Old Testament, and they will wind up then becoming an object of God's anger. Because they will no longer be on Yahweh's side, they will now be opposed to Yahweh. He says, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods, and the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles. That was a god that, they, that uh, many Canaanites served. And burn their idols in the fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. What's being referred to here is what we read about in Exodus when God has brought Moses and the whole nation to Mount Sinai and God comes with fire and smoke down on the mountain. And it's the day that they become his holy nation, a treasured possession. They enter into a covenant with God. God speaks the Ten Commandments. The people are so freaked out. It's so overwhelming that they actually tell Moses, Moses, you speak to God. Tell him to stop speaking to us because literally we're going to die. Like that's how intense, heavy this was. That was the day of the assembly. When Israel assembled around God on Mount Sinai, they became his special possession. That's what he's referring to there. Drop down with me to verse 9. Know therefore that Yahweh your God is God. He is the faithful God keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. But those who hate him, he will repay to their face by harem, destruction. He will not be slow to repay to their face those who hate him. Again, we have the same concept being brought again that has everything to do with are you on Yahweh's side or do you oppose Yahweh? And what he has said at the very beginning is it doesn't matter if you're Israel or not Israel. He says that everything matters about how you interact with me, Yahweh. That's what it boils down to. Are you on Yahweh's side or not Yahweh's side? Uh, can we be honest, though? Do you not feel a little bit uncomfortable with that? Do you not feel at least a little bit uncomfortable with Utter destruction. I do. I've wrestled with this. Quite honestly, um, I wasn't supposed to teach this week. When I created, and yes, I created this series, I purposefully 
put it on a week when I was going to be out of town, and I was making Austin do it. <laughs> True story. <laughs> and I told him, do his face. <laughs> I'm giving you this topic. Uh, first, I actually asked Dr. Burge if he would do it. He said, no, thank you. <laughs> and then I told Austin he was going to do it. He couldn't say, no, thank you. And uh, then God said, yeah, now I'm going to switch up the order, and uh, you're going to have to do it. So now I'm the one doing it. And you know what? It, this is a hard thing. In 21st century, man, we read about this stuff, and it feels like, ooh, what do I think about a God that commands Israel to carry out his justice, utter destruction? Um, how do I square this command that God gives knowing that it's the same God who also described himself as love. And not only that, but told me that I'm supposed to love my enemies as myself, told me to turn the other cheek. How do I square that? How do I just square the fact that God says that mercy triumphs over judgment? That's what I want to dive into today. Uh, I'll be honest, what I'm going to share with you in the next few minutes um, some of you aren't going to love it, at least not all of it, and that's okay. I think, though, that we need to have this conversation, and I think we need to be as open as we can to let God's Word speak for itself while also understanding what it means to be a 3,000 years ago ancient Near Eastern culture versus Western 21st century culture. So I think that there's uh, four thoughts that I want to just give you, and I'm going to try to hit them fairly quickly. They come from a few different authors. I've had to do a lot of reading and studying on this. There are entire books written about this topic, multiple books written about this topic. And there's three individuals in particular that I thought offered four ideas that were helpful for me. So I'd like to start with two ideas that come from an Old Testament scholar. His name is uh, Dr. R.L. Hubbard. And he shares two unappealing realities that I think we have to engage with. The first of the four. He says, the first unappealing reality is that if there is to be any justice in the world, there are people who do deserve destruction. If there is to be any justice in the world, there are people who do deserve destruction destruction. This is an unappealing reality. Uh, we actually even see this in the New Testament. This isn't just an Old Testament issue. Matthew 23, Jesus condemns the Pharisees to future disaster because they are snakes and a brood of vipers, he says, whitewashed tombs. Uh, in Revelation 20, we're actually told of the great white throne judgment on the judgment day when Peoples will be gathered together to be judged by God, all based on their alignment with Christ or not. Those who have given themselves to Jesus are brought into eternity with God, and those who have not, who have been opposing Yahweh, will find destruction. We hear that sometimes, and we think, ah, oh, man, like I don't feel like how that feels. 
until we begin to think about the reality of some of the people that do inhabit our earth. Um, I've, I don't know if it's a privilege, um, I've simply had the opportunity to visit a couple of different places in the world that, where mass genocide has actually happened. Uh, one of those places I was able to visit just a couple of years ago, uh, we have uh, one of our churches that's a part of the network that we're a part of, uh, Hope and Life Church in Phnom Penh, Cambodia. I was uh, able to go and visit the church and spend some time with Pastor Pana and see uh, the ministry that God is using him to build there. And while we were there, uh, I got to go and visit the killing fields. Um, this is a picture uh, that I took uh, while I was there. Uh, Pol Pot was the leader of the Khmer Rouge at that time. And he murdered uh, between two and three million other Cambodians. And there are mass graves uh, when it rains in this area. Um, pieces of clothing and bone often is washed up because so many people were buried in these shallow graves. And if your family experienced that terrible, terrible, brutal violence because of a despot leader, we would want Pol Pot to answer for his crimes. The same thing could be said of Nazi Germany, Osama bin Laden, so many others. It is an unappealing reality, but one that we have to come to grips with nonetheless, that if justice is to be justice, there are some people that do deserve destruction. The second unappealing reality that Hubbard brings up uh, is this. He says, the second unappealing reality is that ultimately a solution to the problem of violence in Joshua may be elusive. That's a hard one to swallow a little bit. But I really appreciate it because Hubbard's done lots and lots of work. He is a passionate follower of Jesus. He is a brilliant academic, and he's done a lot of research on this particular issue. And he wrote this. I want to read it to you. I thought it was very, very helpful to me personally. He says, after many years of wrestling with it emotionally, I do not see myself ever feeling completely comfortable with what transpires in Joshua. By that, I do not mean that the book of Joshua, including its violence, has nothing to teach us or that it should never be read. After all, like it or not, it is part of the biblical canon. I mean simply that people today read Joshua through modern lenses tinted by modern culture's abhorrence of war and violence. And, he says, in the case of Christians by Jesus' ethical teachings. The world of Joshua jars us modern readers because it is so distant, different, and discordant with ours. And then he says, the reality is that the ancient and modern worlds are truly different. But, in a sense, our discomfort with Joshua is a good sign. It shows the depth with which the gospel has transformed us. Now, I will say we have to be careful to not so quickly try to claim the high moral ground. Our cultures today are, quite honestly, 
just as brutal, if not way more, than even the cultures of the ancient Near East. It's just now we sit behind computer screens and we fly drones like a computer game to destroy people. And so our warfare often feels way less intimate than what happens in the book of Joshua. But we just have to caution ourselves from being so quick. I do love, though, the point that Hubbard makes that one of the reasons we feel uncomfortable when we read it is actually a good sign because it shows that the ethic that Jesus begins to give us in the New Testament, and we will come to this at the very end, is beginning to transform our hearts and imaginations when it comes to how we deal with our fellow human beings. The third thing that we need to talk about, we actually find from Dr. Marcus Zender. He says, the stories of Rahab in chapter 2, which we talked about a couple weeks ago, and the Gibeonites in chapter 9, which we'll get to in a few weeks, show that harem, all right, the utter destruction, was conditional, not automatic. Conditional, not automatic. Uh, there's a lot of prominent, not a lot. There's a couple very prominent stories in the book of Joshua, uh, specifically the two that I just mentioned. It's kind of interesting that uh, God would have chosen to include those two stories, the story of Rahab and the story of the Gibeonites, and to give them so much uh, cover within the book of Joshua. And I think the reason for God doing that and including those is to show us that this idea of harem, to utterly destroy, is conditioned based on how a person reacts or interacts with Yahweh. It's all about whether you are on Yahweh's side or opposed to Yahweh. And it didn't matter if you were an Israelite or a Gibeonite or if you were a prostitute from Jericho. It had everything to do with what you decided to do with your knowledge of God. Uh, Zender says this, he says, These prominent stories show that inclusion into God's family, instead of expulsion or extermination, was a real option. And then the fourth one actually comes from a guy named uh, David Firth, Dr. Firth. Uh, he says this, Joshua is an example of ancient narrated history. Okay, this is the genre of literature that the book of Joshua is. And in particular, conquest narratives. Joshua is not the only conquest narrative that we read from the ancient Near East. Lots of different uh, nations, uh, countries actually have uh, ancient conquest narratives that have been written down. And they all follow some certain things that Joshua also follows as well. Okay. An important feature, he says, of this genre is its use of hyperbole. Uh, we see that in a number of different easily discernible areas within the text, he says. Um, and he says it actually has really big implications for how we understand words associated with the Hebrew word harem, to utterly destroy. So, let me give you one example of this. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 37, you don't need to turn there. I'll read to you what it says. It says that Joshua completely destroyed Hebron and everyone in it, okay? That's what it says in 1037. Joshua completely destroyed Hebron, the city, and everyone in it. Then just a couple of chapters later in chapter 14, Joshua is handing out cities and lands as an inheritance to the different tribes. 
The tribe of Judah is given the inheritance of Hebron and the land surrounding that. And what we find in chapter 14, verses 6 through 15, is that the town is clearly inhabited. So, what's going on? Did Joshua completely destroy Hebron and everyone in it? Or was this a use of hyperbole as one of the ways that God explains in or uses this genre of literature? Most scholars don't believe there's any way that within a couple of years an entire city could have been rebuilt and had been then inhabited. What scholars think is that this is another indication of hyperbole within the book of Joshua. And, and let me give you a modern example, okay? Um, A couple months ago, I correctly said to all of you that the University of Michigan football team absolutely annihilated the Ohio State University. It was fantastic, my friends. Now, when I told you, though, that the University of Michigan annihilated the University of, or Ohio State University, I don't think anybody walked out of here thinking that what I had just said was that we Michiganders killed every single member of the Ohio State football team and left them dead on the field, okay? However, if 3,000 years ago somebody began to read that sermon and said, oh, they annihilated the Ohio State football team, they might think that we're an incredibly violent culture. But of course, I'm using hyperbole. What I'm talking about is that we utterly defeated them. Uh, Firth says this. He says, if something like this was written down and then read by a new audience 3,000 years later, okay, they might believe that ours is a more violent society than it is. But for Israel, this language also provides reassurance. Highlighted at key structural points in the book, and he lists those key structural points in the book of Joshua, he says that God had fought for Israel as a people who committed themselves to the covenant Israel could know that God would continue to fight for them in a violent world where they too would suffer violence. At the same time, the covenant reminded Israel that God could also take the land from them just as he had taken it from the Canaanites. There's three things that I think we learn about God. The first thing that we can take away today is that we are not God. Um, we don't understand his justice or his judgment perfectly. We never have. We never will. We all deserve God's wrath due to our sin. None of us are perfect. The very fact that he doesn't simply destroy us, I think, points to God's grace and mercy. There is absolutely a place for discomfort and to ask questions about what's going on here, to wonder, to feel uneasy about it, but there is also a time, in the words of Kendrick Lamar, to sit down, be humble. And I think that this is one of those times in our world. The second thing that we can learn about God is that God owns the whole world. Way too often, in fact, I, I was wrestling with God this week, like, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about violence. And I kind of felt like, who the heck am I as a created being to question the creator as to what he's up to. 
I'm not God. I don't see the past. I don't see the future. I don't know everything that's going on, but he does. I'm also not just and holy as God is just and holy. I'm not God, and I also had to realize that God owns this world. He gets to do with it what he wants. He owns it all. He owns you. He owns me. He owns nations and cities. He owns land. He owns everything. It's his to use and do what he wants with it. The fact that we still get to experience so much goodness and beauty in spite of the pain, again, points to God's goodness. The last thing that we are to learn about God from this is that God loves his creation way more than we ever could. God actually allowed the world that he created to violently destroy his own son. He humbly allowed Jesus to come to this earth and be violently destroyed. God himself allowing his own creation to violently destroy him. Why? Because of his great love for this world. Because of his great love for you and I. Because he knew that we could not pay the penalty that we deserved to pay. And so he allowed Jesus, God himself, to pay that for us. So that we could have a relationship with him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him will not be utterly destroyed but have eternal life. That's God's goodness, and it's available to anyone, regardless of where you've been or what you've done. None of us deserves to stand in the sight of God, but because of Jesus, every single one of us has the ability to do so. And friends, this to me is the greatest lesson of all of this, because we are not simply people who sit in the Old Testament. We are people of the New Testament where God himself has shown his love, proved his love, and offers it freely to anyone who will believe. Outsiders become insiders through a trust in Jesus. And friends, there is nothing that I want more for you than to experience that. Father God, let us be a people who are not afraid to ask hard questions. But God, we also recognize that we are not you and that this world is yours. You are the creator. You own it all. But God will never love this world as much as you do. And you have proved it and you continue to prove it. And so Jesus, as we walk through the book of Joshua, would you allow us to see those echoes that you have purposely placed in there that point towards you, point towards this gift of grace and mercy that we find in your death and resurrection. And let us then give you praise as people who have found hope, hope in you, Jesus. We love you. Thanks for loving us.